Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, naked attraction. No, not what you're thinking. We're actually looking at the magnetic field that's keeping our planet safe, including finding out how it's generated and whether some animals can actually see it. Plus, news of a technique to read out the time of our body clocks, the people making the case to reinstate Pluto as a planet, and how red alert signals can spread through plants in just seconds after something starts to eat them. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, as anyone who's ever suffered from jet lag knows, we are indeed all slaves to the rhythm, in this case our circadian rhythms, or body clocks. And the reason we feel so ghastly when our internal clocks go off kilter is because every cell in our bodies uses time to control what it does and when. Indeed, tissues grow and repair themselves at certain times of the day, our metabolism changes dramatically between dawn and dusk, and medicines and vaccines given at one time of the day can be much more effective than the same drug administered just hours later. This means there is enormous potential to improve healthcare, but only if we can reliably tell what time our tissues think it is. Now, Rosemary Brown from Northwestern University in the US has developed a way to do this by comparing the activities of a collection of different genes in blood cells. You have an internal clock in your body. The signal for it originates in your brain. But it orchestrates a wide variety of processes across your body, including when you feel sleepy, it regulates your digestion, it regulates your blood pressure to get you ready for the day, it regulates your body temperature to allow you to sleep comfortably at night. And all of these things are coordinated by clocks that exist in each and every cell of your body. So there's a master clock in your brain, and it synchronizes all of these little tiny cellular clocks. And do we know, Rosemary, what the clock work is inside all these cells that are running these clocks to keep time like that? Yeah, so this is really fascinating. It's a set of genes that have an activity that varies over the course of the day, and they interact with each other in a little circuit that allows them to regulate each other. So one comes up, it pushes another one down, and this push and pull results in an ebb and flow of activity with a 24-hour cycle. 
And what the brain centre then sets the tone for the rest of the body, how? Your brain secretes hormones that your cells pick up in order to reset their clocks so that they're right in sync with what your brain is telling them. So in theory then, if I were to read one of the clock signals from the end of my little finger, it should be telling the same time, if all is well, as my brain. Exactly. So why does this matter? Why do we need clocks in my finger if I have one in my brain at all? The reason that this is so important is that you need all of the processes across your body to be orchestrated in sync so that you remain healthy, given that it controls things ranging from not just sleep to digestion and blood pressure, you can imagine that it has an enormous impact on your health if it's misaligned in some way. In fact, research has shown that circadian misalignment, when your clock is out of sync with your environment, is tied to diseases ranging from depression to diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's. So having a misaligned clock can really adversely impact your health. Is that a part of our clinical practice? So when we go and seek treatments, are they aligned with our clock to make sure that we're doing the right thing at the right time in the body's clock cycle? Presently, they're not. And that's what we're trying to change. So we know that it's incredibly important. But right now, it's very difficult to measure it. The current way that people have been measuring people's internal physiological clocks is by taking samples every hour across the day and night. And you can imagine that's not really something that most people would want to do. So we set out to develop an easy blood test so that we can monitor people's circadian health and use that to make treatment decisions. When you say it's a blood test, what are you measuring? It takes two blood samples, say one in the morning, one in the evening. They can actually be taken at any time of day as long as they're separated by a few hours. And then we look for the activity of different genes in the blood. So there aren't just the core clock genes that are responding to the 24-hour rhythm. The clock actually controls a huge number of other genes that sort of move in sync with the clock. And those are the markers that we're looking for in the blood. So you take some blood. What do you get? blood cells out of the blood and then look in those living blood cells to see what the gene levels are. Yeah, exactly. So how many genes do you consider then in order to to get a readout like this? We started out our research by looking at all of the genes that we could measure. That's about 20,000 different genes. And we used a pretty sophisticated computational algorithm to try to whittle that down to a manageable amount. And what our algorithms told us was that there's a set of about 41 genes that change over the course of the day. And by looking at the levels of those 41 genes, we can pinpoint the time in your body. Right. So you literally are saying, well, we know that when it's seven o'clock by my body clock, this gene should be doing this and its counterpart should be doing this. And because you know what the relationships are across that small cluster of genes, you've got a reasonably accurate way of predicting my body clock time. That's right. And it's accurate to within about an hour and a half, which is good enough to be able to then make treatment decisions based on it. What sort of a difference will it make then? drugs have a different effectiveness depending on where they're taken. So this is well known for certain blood pressure drugs and for chemotherapies that they're 
differentially effective at different times of day. But the optimal time for me to take my blood pressure drug might be different from the optimal time for you to take your blood pressure drug. If we can measure the time in your body, we can tell you exactly when the optimal time is for you to take your medicines. That means we could use lower doses, reduce the risk of side effects, and hopefully have more effective treatments. Sounds very exciting. That was Rosemary Brown. And that study has just come out in the journal PNAS. Now, are you a Pluto sympathiser who's been made very despondent by this miniature marble's demotion to a dwarf planet a little while ago? Well, if so, you're in very good company because a paper has just come out arguing that Pluto should, in fact, be reclassified as a planet again. Heavens, I hear you exclaim. Why? And indeed, why was it dwarfed in the first place? Georgia Mills and Adam Murphy have been doing a little bit of stargazing to find out for us. So back when you and I were kids, it was very easy to remember the order of the planets in our solar system. My very easy method just speeds up naming planets. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto. Yeah, except your very easy method got it wrong. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union voted to reclassify Pluto as a dwarf planet. Hashtag justice for Pluto. So why did they feel the need to debate this? Back in 1930, when Pluto was discovered, it was the only celestial body in that part of the sky that we knew about. But there are actually a lot of bodies out there in the fringes of our solar system. Ah, yes, this is the Kuiper Belt. This is the massive donut on the outer solar system, which is full of icy and gassy bodies. Exactly, and that's the problem. Pluto is just one of many objects inhabiting the same orbital zone, and we've been finding things there almost as big as Pluto. One called Quawar was found in 2002, Sedna in 2003, and Eris in 2005, which was actually bigger than Pluto. Ah, 2005, the year before the big debate. Yeah, exactly. Did we have shed loads of new planets all of a sudden? You'd need a very long mnemonic. Something had to be done, so a committee sat down in Prague to define what constitutes a planet. After a lot of debating, they had a vote on the following definition. A planet is a celestial body which A, is in orbit around the sun... Check. B. Has sufficient mass for its self-gravity to overcome rigid body forces so that it assumes a hydrostatic equilibrium shape. Uh. Is it round? Check. And C. Has it cleared the neighbourhood around its orbit? That is to say, is it dominant enough in its orbit that anything else around has either been absorbed or booted out into space? Uh, eh, eh, failed on the last hurdle. The Kuiper Belt is a very busy neighbourhood. Yeah, exactly. So under that definition, Pluto gets booted from the exclusive planetary club into the dwarf planet economy lounge. Hang on, are we sure that the other planets fulfil that last definition? There's a heck of a lot of junk flying around the rest of our solar system. Well, some have argued that under the new definition, Earth and Jupiter fail to meet the IAU's definition, but they're in the minority. Well, I hope Earth gets to stay a planet. I don't know how I'd feel about living on a non-planet. And what about this new paper? They're definitely Team Pluto is a planet. Very much so. Lots have argued that Pluto should be reinstated since the decision for a bunch of different reasons. This time they've gone through the literature and looked for examples about the third part of the definition actually being used. And this is the one about being the most dominant in the orbit. That's the one. They checked in papers from the past 200 years. They really care about Pluto. And they found it's barely been used historically, only once in the 19th century. They argue that it's an arbitrary definition. Isn't that the point of a definition? Well, it's hardly the first or the strongest challenge to the ruling, and it won't be the last. But the IAU are reportedly happy to debate the topic again, so we'll have to watch this space. 
Oh, I'm demoting you from human for that. <laughs> so Pluto is still a dwarf planet, at least for now. That paper they were discussing just came out in the journal Icarus. Gosh, that debate's going to keep going on, isn't it? Now, back here on Earth, the school year has begun, and as we head into winter, as well as long nights and dreary weather, another certainty is that soon we'll all be succumbing to this season's circulating strains of colds and flu viruses. At the moment, we can't do much about them, except treat the symptoms, because we don't know the details of what's going on when a virus gets into one of ourselves. So finding viral Achilles heels that we can hit with drugs to trip up an infection is very tricky. Now, though, Cambridge scientist Omer Ziv has found a cunning way to freeze an infecting virus in its tracks and then pull out the parts of the cell that the virus is interacting with so we can discover how it makes us ill and possibly where to focus our drug-developing activities. We are interested in viruses. Viruses are those little creatures that go inside our bodies and make us ill. And we are interested to know how those viruses manipulate our cells, practically tell the cell stop everything you've been doing so far and start making more viruses. Yeah, because viruses are sort of like the pirates of the microbial world, aren't they? They have to hijack our cells and turn them into virus factories because they're so tiny, they don't have space inside the virus particle for any of the machinery that you need to make new viruses. They need one of our cells to do that. Yes, exactly. They enter our cells and manipulate whatever the cell is doing, but we don't know essentially how. What have you therefore invented here? How does your technique shed light on that? So we've been um, developing a technique that enables us to freeze in time uh, the virus infection and find out how viruses interact with the host on the molecular level. Is that a bit like if I were to put a virus into a cell, wait a little while and then, as you say, freeze time and then look inside the cell and ask what bits of the virus are binding onto or interacting with or controlling what bits of the cell so I can see what's having a chemical conversation with what. Yes, exactly. And once we find those interactions, assuming that part of them might be essential for the virus, we can, we can think then of finding ways to target, to inhibit, interfere with those interactions and affect the virus life cycle. How have you done this, though? How do you do that freezing-in-time effect? So to do that, we need to glue the interacting molecules together to fix those interactions and then extract the information. And we use small chemicals that enable us to link, to glue those interactions together and identify the interacting partners. So how do you make the glue set? How do you actually say, right, now I want to freeze time and make that binding effect kick in? The gluing starts whenever I treat the infected cells with those small chemicals that can enter the cell and glue physically the interacting molecules one to each other. So are you saying then that if you can spot what these interactions are, it might highlight to us much more quickly than it, we would otherwise be able to discover them, potential essential processes that the virus relies on to grow and make us unwell, and therefore you could engineer some way of either switching off that target or putting something into the cell that would stop that interaction and therefore it could block the virus. Yes, exactly. We are interested both in the biology, so the new technique might teach us how these viruses replicate inside the cells and also to understand whether those interactions are targetable and whether we can use them for our development of new uh, medications. So who knows, maybe thanks to Omar Ziv, who you've heard there, we're now a step closer to a cure for the common cold. The technique he was describing is published in the journal Nature Methods.
from baffling British weather, the sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic, and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists in Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com/short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Now still to come here on The Naked Scientist is the Earth's magnetic field facing a flip in future. But first, some might say that we humans have it very easy. If something starts to eat us, we can register our displeasure by either making a fast getaway or beating off the guilty party. But plants don't have this luxury. They're literally rooted to the spot, so they need to resort to other means to discourage things from eating them. One deterrent at their disposal is to make themselves taste unappealing, but they don't want to waste lots of resources on tasting bad until they really need to. So how do they send a rapid I'm-being-eaten message all around the plant? This week... A paper in the journal Science reveals the answer. Georgia Mills paid a visit to the University of Cambridge's Sainsbury Lab to speak to Philip Wigg, who wasn't involved directly in the study, but he does work on how plants sense their environment. Wow, it looks like a sort of bank vault in here. So this is a plant called Arabidopsis, and it's just a small mustard plant. And this was the same plant that was used in the study, which is described in this paper. And you can see it's quite a modest-looking plant. It's got small white leaves. But for research, it's been an absolute boon. So this is really sort of the lab mouse for plant research because it has a fully sequenced genome and it's very well understood. But unfortunately for us, sequenced genome or no, Arabidopsis also lives in an incredibly noisy home. So we went to find a quieter part of the greenhouse. This is what I thought was a quiet area. Which was harder than it sounds. So this is quite noisy too. <laughs> there are a few ambient noises that you don't think about when you're working here. Ah, sweet silence. We settled down to chat amongst some other plant specimens who, believe it or not, may have felt our presence. And they need to. So you can imagine if you're a delicious plant sitting outside trying to grow in the sunshine, if an army of caterpillars comes along, you really want to be able to respond very quickly and defend yourself as best as you can. And that's quite complex because obviously you can't move away. So plants have to be very resourceful and very perceptive when dealing with pests like caterpillars that want to have them for lunch. So if you imagine this plant here, you could imagine this leaf. And if we just pull the leaf apart, and as I do that, what I'm doing is I'm pulling apart millions of cells. So millions of cells are being crushed and broken open. Now it turns out, although we can't see it, as we tear this leaf, the plant is actually responding inside within seconds. We can't see it, but we have known that plants are able to do something like this for a long time. But unlike you and me, they don't have the luxury of a central nervous system. So this group, among many others, were wondering, how are they sending these messages? What they show is that the plant is using a small amino acid called glutamate. Now, glutamate is also used in humans as a neurotransmitter, remarkably enough. So what happens when a cell is damaged is that the cell releases glutamate into the open, and that glutamate is then sensed and picked up by channels. And when these channels become activated, they release calcium. And it's the calcium signal that this paper shows is a mobile signal that travels within seconds throughout the plant. And then what the plant does is it activates the expression of genes that control responses to pathogens. So one way for a plant to protect against a caterpillar is to make itself taste very bad. 
How did they find this out? How did they work out this is what was going on inside the plant? They used a number of tools from molecular biology to identify the actual receptors. And so they had a hypothesis that calcium could be involved and that glutamate could be the signal. And then they were able to find particular plants that lack the channels that respond to glutamate. And what they were then able to show was if you take away just these channels within the plant, the plant no longer transmits this signal. That's kind of definitive proof that you need these channels in order to respond to herbivory. I feel kind of bad now for, you know, pulling up daisies to make daisy chains when they're sending out these, ah, help me signals. That's a good point, actually. Um, We know plants respond very much to any kind of perturbation, and they have these large-scale changes. Whether or not they're aware of this or whether they feel pain is probably unlikely. So I wouldn't feel too guilty about cutting the lawn. But it's interesting to be aware that when you do cut the lawn, You're causing these large-scale changes in how every single blade of grass is responding to being cut. And you get that lovely smell. Is that their their death throes? That's one way of looking at it, but I try not to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) And as someone who works on this in this field, how important and how how much of a change has this paper brought, would you say? Oh, I think it's it's a really it's a great study and it'll go into the textbooks, I think. There's a whole range of very fundamental questions that we still don't know about plants. This is quite remarkable in a way because we are so dependent on farm-grown plants to sustain the entire human population. And so until relatively recently, farming has been largely a sort of trial-and-error process. And just in the last few decades, we've started to understand the molecular basis by which plants grow and how they develop. And what this means is that it enables us to potentially improve crop yields and food security. There's no question that herbivory is a major problem in many areas of agriculture. So if we can create smarter plants that are more perceptive and more resilient to feeding insects, then that's going to be potentially a huge advantage. Gosh, I'll never look at cut grass the same way again. That was Philip Wigg from the Sainsbury's Lab at Cambridge University. And the study he was discussing with Georgia was by Simon Gilroy and his team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Now, Izzy, are you often a victim of mosquitoes? Oh, gosh, they love me. It's so frustrating. see, I'm not. They don't go near me. But you might benefit from this because here's a story about something you are definitely not going to see on the catwalk at London Fashion Week and that's because it's something highly practical for a change. These are socks that could save you from mosquito bites and also malaria. So my name is Dr. Mtogo Zisi Sibanda. I'm from the University of Pretoria. When you're outdoors, uh, mosquitoes will bite you on the ankles and feet 93% of the time. They are attracted by food odour. Well, isn't that where we spray the insect repellent then? Yes, so you can spray a topical insect repellent, but it will quickly evaporate. In an hour or two, it's no longer effective. Then you have to respray again. So we needed to come up with a way of having a long-lasting formulation. So basically what we developed is a slow-release technology. Basically we spin a fiber, and the fiber is specially engineered to hold a liquid insect repellent and the fiber will slowly release that repellent over a long period of time. It can last up to eight months, or if you knit the fiber into a textile, you can wash that textile for minimum 25 times and still effective. So you would put the formulation into this fiber using the technology you've invented, and what, you'd then spin it into a pair of socks or an anklet or something that a person would wear? That's correct. Does it work? 
It works. We have tested it. We have actually published the results in a high-impact scientific journal. And how effective is it? And how did you do that testing? Okay, so there are a number of tests recommended by the World Health Organization. The one that we use is a pretty aggressive one where we put our formulated sock on one foot and a control sock, which is untreated, on the other foot. We put both feet in a cage with 300 female hungry mosquitoes. So they have to make a choice. Which ankle do they feed on? So if you see all of them going to the untreated sock, then you know that your sock is working. That sounds like a really painful experiment. (laughs) Did you do it? I I did it. Um, But, you know, you have people who run these insectaries and they use their arms to feed the mosquitoes. So what I did is really nothing to what other people do. The things that people will do for science. But tell me about the technology that's enabled you to do this. How does this clever fibre and fibre spinning technique work? And how do you get the insect repellent in there in the first place? Right. So what we make is what we call a bi-component fibre. One polymer is in the core, and that polymer can absorb high amount of oil. And we have a polymer that forms a sheath around the core polymer. So the oil we have to diffuse through that sheath. So in that way, the sheet slows down the evaporation of the oil overall. If you knit the textile into a fiber and wash that textile, you only wash the outside of the fiber. The bulk of the liquid is still stored inside the uh, fiber. It will still migrate to the surface, and that's how it's, it's replenished. In essence, it's a tube within a tube, and the tube inside the tube loves oily things. The tube yes. outside the tube hates oily things. Yes. So you've got your repellent, which is oily-based. Yes, in the middle, and it's, it's obviously facing a barrier to diffuse out very slowly. Exactly. What is the chemical that you're using as the repellent? Is that just DEET or something? Because that's the industry-leading standard DEET, isn't it? Yes, so DEET is the standard repellent on the market right now. It's got a bad reputation, unfortunately, although it has not been proven to be bad scientifically. So we're using an alternative repellent called IR3535. It's as good as DEET. We also use a natural repellent based on the eucalyptus tree. And are these socks, or whatever you design, fashionable? Because obviously, especially with youngsters, people are not going to wear something that looks like a fashion disaster. So can you add colour, add patterning, make it like it's a normal piece of everyday wear so it doesn't look out of place? So when it comes to that, it's so easy uh, because we can make the fibre into any colour. We just add a pigment so we can make any sock design. We actually combine the our yarn with the liquid, with cotton or wool, to make it nice and comfortable, and we can make a nice, fashionable sock. How will I know, though, when my socks are no longer working? Because it's brilliant while it is working, of course, but there has to be a way of knowing when I'm no longer protected, because otherwise I could yeah. be out there with false confidence and catch something. So basically, we do a lab testing to determine the length that these products can work, and we can sort of calculate the minimum length that you should keep them for. So they will be labelled to say it can work for this long and after this is recommended that you get a new product. Can you recharge them or do you have to throw them away? Because obviously that's not great from a sustainability point of view. No, you're right. So you can't recharge them. And what we are doing right now is we're developing the fibre based on biodegradable polymer. There is research that is ongoing to use biodegradable polymer so that they can be disposable. And they're also planning to do a bed bug repelling mattress. That sounds like it could come in very handy too. That was Mtokozisi Sibanda, 
and he was talking to me for the BioAfrica conference in Durban. The company that he set up to develop those insect repelling fabrics is called Africa Applied Chemical and the product should be hitting the market, he tells me, later this year. And if you'd like to find out more, all of the transcripts and the papers for the stories you've just heard can be found on our website, thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Izzy Clark. And in this half of the programme, we're tackling an attractive topic that explains why this happens. And please, don't adjust your set. No, the robot overlords have not taken over. That's the sound of the northern lights, or aurora borealis, which are formed when charged particles from the sun slam into our atmosphere, producing visible light and radio signals. The particles are deflected in towards the polar regions by the Earth's magnetic field. But why is our planet magnetic in the first place? Have we always had the same magnetic field? And is it true that some animals can detect it and use it to find their way around? Well, this week, we're going to try and find out. And with us to answer some of these questions is Cathy Whaler. She's from the University of Edinburgh. Cathy maps the Earth's magnetic field, but she's also apparently got an asteroid named after. Now, is that true, Cathy, or did you buy it off the internet? No, it's actually true. When I was president of the Royal Astronomical Society, which also covers geophysics, I was awarded that at the end of my service. What's it called? Has it got a good name? Uh, it's called Cathy Whaler. Very <laughs> uninteresting, I'm afraid, but... <laughs> Well, it sits in the asteroid belt. They're imaginative bunch, these astronomers, aren't mm-hmm. they? Anyway, good to have mm-hmm. you with us, Cathy. Now, look, I've got a compass sitting here. And, uh, you know, when I go walking, I use this to find my way around. It's a small magnet which senses the planet's magnetic field, responds to it and tells me when I'm going in the right direction. So why has the Earth got the ability to make a magnetic field and how does it do it? So we all sit and walk about and, and drive over the Earth's crust which is a brittle layer, 7 to 60 kilometres thick, depending on where you are, thinner over the oceans. And that's made of silicate, it's made of rocks. And beneath that is also another rocky layer, the mantle, slightly different in that it's able to creep on rather slow timescales. So that's the top half of the Earth. And when you get about halfway down, there's a really major change. So we go from silica-dominated material to iron-dominated material. And the iron is where we get our magnetic field from. And we get it specifically from the outer part of what we call the core, the area towards the centre of the Earth, divided into a liquid outer part and a solid inner part. And which of those two bits, the, the liquid outer part and the more solid inner part, is responsible for making the magnetism? It's the outer part because that undergoes a process that we call convection. Basically, it churns around and as that liquid moves, then it's able to self-generate a magnetic field. Now, given that this is going on thousands of kilometres beneath our feet, how do you as as a group of geologists know that what you told me is true? Well, we measure the field on different timescales and by different mechanisms and and that enables us to see the changes in the field and the changes tell us that we have to have some active dynamic process that's responsible for its generation. It's not a residual field from when the Earth was formed, for instance, or anything like that. And it has to be originating from that mobile core. Now, given that the Earth is is losing heat all the time, Cathy, and cooling off, that includes the core, doesn't it? So if, if the core were to go solid, what would happen to our field? 
Well, if the core was to freeze out altogether, then we would actually lose our magnetic field and then we'd lose this protective shield that we've just been talking about that, that um, protects us from solar wind particles and things like that. For instance, if you think about our near neighbour Mars, Mars used to have a magnetic field, but it stopped being generated and, and as a result, Mars lost its atmosphere. Oh, thanks, Cathy. And we'll come back to you in a moment. But first, we really need to explain what a magnet actually is and how the magnet in a compass is a bit different from what the Earth is doing itself. So I strapped on some safety goggles and headed off to see physicist and science demo king Dave Ansell to find out. Hello. Hello, hello. Let's talk magnets. (laughs) We're here looking at magnets in this amazing workshop. I'm quite overwhelmed with all of the experiments we could do. Um, What is a permanent magnet? Let's start off by looking at a really, really small scale. Some materials, like iron is one of them, have atoms with more electrons going one way around than the other. And that creates an electric current, which makes a little tiny electromagnet. Now, on its own, this doesn't make something even magnetic. These little atoms will be randomly arranged and the magnetism will average out to zero. But with some of these materials like iron, nickel and cobalt, for weird quantum mechanical reasons, these little tiny atomic magnets line up, forming great big areas called domains, with all of the magnets lined up so all the magnetic fields add together so they can interact with things magnetically really strongly. Okay, so it's like they're all acting in one direction, so overall they have this sort of magnetic pull, essentially. That's right. And then if you put them near another magnet, all those magnets will interact and they'll either stick or repel. Okay, so how is it that something can stick to a magnet, but it isn't a magnet itself? So this goes back to the domains I was talking about earlier, which are the small magnets inside a piece of iron. I've got a little metal nut here, and inside it there are lots of magnetic domains, and they're all magnets themselves, but they're arranged randomly. So overall, it's not a magnet. But if you put it near a magnet, those domains will all twist round and line up, so it becomes a magnet aligned with the original magnet, so a north pole is next to a south pole, so it sticks. And we can see that because if we take a second nut, it will stick to the first one. Oh, wow. And a third nut will stick to that and a fourth, fifth, sixth. So what we've got here is lots and lots of tiny little metal nuts on their own. They're not stuck to each other. Whereas you bring a magnet into the game and all of a sudden one sticks onto the magnet, then you can stick another onto one nut and so on and you've got an even bigger magnet, essentially. That's right. And with a material like iron, as soon as you take it away from a magnet, the magnetic domains just kind of randomise again and it stops being a magnet overall, so I can take them off and they don't stick to each other. There's a big difference between something being a magnet and something having magnetic properties. Take your fridge, for example. You can stick magnets on it, therefore it has magnetic properties, but it's not a giant magnet itself. I mean, it would make taking cutlery out of a drawer rather problematic. And these iron nuts are the same. On their own, they don't stick to each other, but because they have magnetic properties, as long as there's a magnet in the vicinity, they'll stick and act like an extension of it. But could we take one of these nuts and actually transform it into a permanent magnet itself? 
So first of all, you need to start with the right material. You want something which is really hard to twist these domains round. One of the best materials for that is neodymium iron boron, which is an alloy of all those three elements. So this is a lump of neodymium iron boron, and it will stick to a magnet, but very weakly, because not many of those domains are twisting round, so it forms a very, very weak magnet. Okay, so how would we turn that into a magnet? So what you have to do is make it easier to turn these domains round, and the way you do that is by heating it up. Oh, and bring out this giant blowtorch, my goodness. So I'll now heat this up to kind of orange hot. And I'm going to take a step back. Okay, so orange hot isn't exactly a temperature we all understand. Dave heated this lump of neodymium iron boron to temperatures of above 800 degrees Celsius. And yep, it started to glow. I'll now put that down next to a very strong magnet and let it cool down slowly. But how does cooling a lump of hot metal near a magnet then turn it into a magnet itself? Because it's really hot, these magnetic domains can twist round very easily. And then as it cools down, it becomes harder and harder for them to spin round. So hopefully we will kind of freeze in the magnetic field, which it sees now. I've now moved this piece of neodymium iron boron away from the magnet and I put it next to a compass. And if I spin it round, the compass turns round. Oh, wow. So we have literally just taken something and turned it into a permanent magnet. Yeah. And because it's neodymium iron boron, this is now a very permanent magnet and it will stay like this for years and years and years. So would this method work with, say, like the Earth's magnetic field? You get a much, much weaker magnetization, but you do get this effect. So it's really important um, in geology because if you get a molten piece of rock, um, it's basically like heating it up to red hot. And if you've got any little lumps of um, magnetic material in there, as it cools down, they'll freeze in the Earth's magnetic field, which was there when it was created. And that can tell you stuff about the Earth's magnetic field over time, because if you know how old the rock is, you know what the Earth's magnetic field was like. So... Is the Earth a giant permanent magnet? The short answer is no, and I can prove why it can't be. What I've got here is uh, an iron nut again next to a magnet. It sticks really quite effectively. Now what I'm going to do is heat this up. And it's back to the blowtorch. Our Earth's core is full of iron. We took this tiny iron bolt and heated it to, again, 800 degrees Celsius. So we can use heat to turn certain metals into magnets, but it can also demagnetise them. And now if I put it near the magnet, it doesn't stick at all. As it cools down, eventually, it does start to stick. Oh gosh, yeah, so it's just stuck to it. So what's going on here? If you heat up a ferromagnet like iron hot enough, you give it enough energy that it, that the individual atoms stop linking to each other and they just start to randomise and they're all pointing in a completely random direction so it stops being even magnetic at all. This happens at a temperature called the Curie temperature. Then as it cools down, um, they start lining up again and it starts becoming a magnetic material again. And so this can prove that the Earth can't be a permanent magnet because Curie points maybe a thousand, maybe slightly above that degree Celsius. And the centre of the Earth is much, much hotter than that. So it can't possibly be a permanent magnet. Dave Ansell. Cathy, coming back to you. So the Earth is getting its magnetic field from this mobile molten iron core in the centre. What's the shape of the magnetic field that that core produces? 
Well, interestingly, the shape is very much like a bar magnet, as we've just been hearing, with two poles, a north pole and a south pole. And because the convection, the liquid is moving around so strongly influenced by the Earth's rotation, that bar magnet field lines up with the north-south poles approximately. So it does look very much like a bar magnet, but it's caused by a very different mechanism. What benefits does the field impart to us uh, as dwellers on Earth? Well, we've already heard about it shielding us from the vagaries of space weather. So it's, it stops solar charged particles re- reaching the Earth's surface over most of the part. It gives us a way to navigate, as you were saying, as the start of this program. It, it imparts a signature to the geology, which we found helpful in exploration for resources. And um, it, it really is our protective shield. And that's perhaps the most important thing about it. And in protecting us also gives us that lovely light show that we call the, the aurora. That's right. And so why is it so important to study it and what can it tell us? Well, it does provide our window on the core. So a lot of the information that we have about the Earth's core has come from knowing its magnetic field and knowing how that field changes over time. We can also use it to investigate the geology. We can look for mineral resources. We can look for um, hydrocarbon resources. It's used to help when we're drilling for those resources. We can even see a magnetic field in the oceans when we're looking at the data collected by low-Earth orbiting satellites. So because the oceans are a salty water as they move around, they also generate a magnetic field in a rather similar way to to the Earth's core itself. And we can see the ocean tides even. Cathy, thank you very much for telling us all about it. Cathy Whaler there from the University of Edinburgh. Still to come, can birds see the Earth's magnetic field so they can navigate by it? Meanwhile, if you'd like to get in touch with us, tweet at Naked Scientist or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, as we've just heard, if you take a potentially magnetic material and you raise it to a high temperature and cool it in the presence of a magnetic field, it remains magnetised. And this also happens on Earth when molten rocks from the planet's interior solidify at the surface because as they do so, they capture a snapshot of the magnetic field in which they formed, and that's how we know that the Earth's magnetic field has flipped around in the past and been changing. Richard Harrison studies this at the University of Cambridge. Richard, welcome to the programme. Um, How do you actually read these tiny signatures in the rocks that you study in your laboratory? Well, first of all, you have to collect some samples. So uh, a paleomagnetist who studies these ancient magnetic signals will go out into the field with something like a modified chainsaw, drill into the rock, extract an oriented core, where we know exactly what orientation it was taken out of the Earth, take that back to a laboratory. You then have to measure its magnetization. So we have extremely sensitive magnetometers, usually called the squid magnetometers. That's a superconducting quantum interference device. So they're able to detect the really weak magnetization of these things. And we put that into what's called a shielded room. So we want to measure the magnetization in the absence of the Earth's field. So we build these shielded rooms, they're big wooden structures lined with metal, a little bit like a Faraday cage for magnetism. It shields out the Earth's field so we can measure it in a zero-field environment and see what the magnetic memory of that rock is. 
Does that tell you, though, how strong the magnetic field is? Because that's the other important component, isn't it? Not just what direction it's pointing in, but also how big it is. Yes. So we get two fundamental pieces of information from these rocks. We can tell the direction of the field that was present when the rock uh, erupted and cooled at the surface. But we can also tell how intense the magnetic field was. And we can trace both of those things back through time by looking at rocks of lots of different ages. You gave me a very nice sample when we came in, this little crystal and and a very strong magnet. Oh, yes. What, what was that to show? OK, so this shows why rocks are magnetic in the first place. And they're magnetic because they contain a, a small proportion of a mineral called magnetite. That's this my, black crystal. Yeah, so what you have in your hand there is a, is a beautiful octahedron uh, of magnetite, which is an iron oxide. And what you'll find is that if you place it close to that uh, little bar magnet, it should... Okay, I'll bring, I'll bring the. This is, so this is basically a chunk of rock, and I'm going to bring it close to the magnet, and, oh, and it just leapt off my hand and, and stuck to it. So basically, you're recording tiny signatures written into minerals, a bit like that one when you do your experiments. That's right. So magnetite makes a very nice permanent magnet if the, if the particles are small enough. There's this sort of Goldilocks zone for particle size. So that piece you have in your hand is sort of millimetres in size. That would be too big. It doesn't have a very good memory. But if we shrink those particles down to just a few hundred nanometers, they become excellent magnets with a, a really good memory of the Earth's magnetic field. And what have you learned about Earth's geology, uh, the evolution of our magnetic field and the evolution of the surface of the Earth by actually studying these signatures? Well, paleomagnetic measurements have been absolutely fundamental in our discovery of how the Earth works. So the theory of plate tectonics really came about through studying the magnetic signals in the ocean floor. And through uh, studying the, the, the magnetic memory that you see there, it was able to prove that the ocean was, was spreading and that continents were drifting across the Earth. Why the ocean floor? Why is that critical? During the Second World War, people mapped out the ocean floor magnetically in detail. They wanted to uh, detect uh, submarines, and so they needed to map out the magnetism of the ocean floor. And what they found were these magnetic stripes that go parallel to a ridge of volcanoes all the way down the centre of, of the ocean. And these magnetic stripes are, are symmetrical either side of the ridge. And what they track over time is this random flipping of the Earth's magnetic field, where the north and the south poles switch around. And they're symmetrical either side of the, the ridge because, what, the seafloor is being born there and moving away. Yes. The, if it's parallel to the ridge, that's because the seafloor was born on each side of the ridge at the same time, so it inherited the same field at that moment. In exactly. Time. So the magnetism is recorded as that new ocean crust in the centre of the ridge is, is cooled and it records the present-day field and then it's pushed aside to both sides and then later on the earth field flipped and then you get a different direction being recorded at the centre of the ridge. So that pattern of magnetisation was absolutely critical to sort of determining that continental drift was real and uh, that led eventually to the, the revolution of plate tectonics. Can we, we use the same trick, Richard, with samples from not just Earth but other planets? We have meteorites from Mars, for example. We have samples of lunar rock. Can we look at magnetic fields in those? Absolutely. A lot of the work that we do in Cambridge is looking at extraterrestrial materials. So that could come from studying meteorites where we can look at the magnetic fields generated by asteroids early on in the solar system. We looked at magnetism during the Apollo missions on the moon and, and that uh, we were able to bring rocks back from and the, the moon, moon. The moon does have a magnetic field, does it? It doesn't have one now, but it did have about four billion years ago, early on in its uh, formation, yes. So where's it gone then? Why has the moon no longer got one? Well, the moon has a very small uh, core, as in, in the case of Mars the conditions have to be just right to, for that core to generate a magnetic field. So when you have a smaller body that's cooling quickly, the dynamo tends to switch off 
at some point. And you mentioned earlier about the field flipping and things. People mm-hmm. are often quite uh, curious about this. Has that happened lots of times in the past? And when's it due to happen next? Should we be worried? We shouldn't be worried. Uh, the Earth's field has flipped many, many times uh, in the Earth's past. Uh, it flips on average something you know three to five times per million years. The last reversal was 780,000 years ago. Life has persisted through all of those reversals, so there doesn't seem to be any majorly dangerous impacts of having the Earth's field flip. The main thing you'll notice is that mobile phone signals will get worse when there's a flip. Oh my goodness, mine's bad enough already. I can't, don't think I can tolerate an even worse mobile phone. I might just throw the phone away. Anyway, thanks for that great news, Richard. It's, it's reassuring to know that life will persist. So that's Richard Harrison. He's from the University of Cambridge. Now, apart from being very useful for geologists who want to understand the planet's past, as well as fending off the onslaught of solar wind and helping humans who want to navigate the old-fashioned way with a compass, the Earth's magnetic field is essential to many migratory species. Birds appear to be able to read the direction of the field and use it to guide them as they fly thousands of miles. Francesca Fazi spoke to Oxford scientist Peter Hall, who suspects that proteins called cryptochromes in the bird's eye enable them to see magnetic fields. Close your eyes and turn around five times. Now, without opening your eyes, head towards magnetic north. Okay, so you don't actually have to try this. And please don't, especially if you're listening near a busy road. But if you were able to do it, chances are you'd be a robin or any other kind of migratory bird. Scientists have worked out that birds that migrate can actually sense the direction of the magnetic field using some neat tests. Here's Professor Peter Hoare at the University of Oxford who specialises in this area. The experiments involve testing the birds during the migratory season. So these are small migratory songbirds, like robins. And during the migratory seasons in the spring and autumn, if you put them in a funnel-shaped cage, the direction in which they hop to try and get out of the cages is the direction in which they would fly if they were released. Now, here comes the clever bit. Using coils and currents, you can change the magnetic fields that the birds are experiencing and then see if it changes the way they try and hop out of the cage. And, incredibly, it did. So how do our feathered friends do this? The leading hypothesis at the moment is that there are magnetically sensitive chemical reactions in the retinas of the bird's eyes and that these chemical reactions allow them to sense the direction of the field. A recent study has identified a specific protein with the great name cryptochrome 4 that they think is the most likely candidate for a magnetoreceptor in these migratory species. This is because cryptochrome 4, or cry 4 as they like to call it, only seems to be expressed during the migratory season when they'd need it to guide their long journeys. And get this, birds who don't migrate, like chickens, don't express cry at all. The protein is located in specific cells in the retina which are involved with vision. So, does this mean that the birds can actually see the magnetic field? Peter has a classic scientist's answer to this. Maybe. So no flights of fancy for us today then? We don't 
know nearly enough about how the signaling works. It is clear that the detection of the magnetic field involves the bird's visual system. So the receptors are likely to be in the photoreceptor cells. We know that when the information from the retina reaches the brain, it's processed in a visual part of the brain. I think it's too soon to say whether the birds literally see the magnetic field or whether it's some visual impression, which of course is a bit difficult for us to imagine because humans don't seem to have a magnetic sense. Although we have tried to find it, one study sent out blindfolded students into the woods and asked them to find their way out again. Amazingly, they did, without any serious injuries, and the researchers suggested that this was due to us having a secret sense of magnetic north, much like the migratory birds. But, like many of these findings, it has never been replicated so we can't genuinely claim to have this superpower. Some other animals, though, might. There was a high-profile study a few years ago in which the scientists analysed Google Earth images of herds of wild deer and domestic cattle and found that the animals' body axes tended to align with the Earth's magnetic field. Gosh. That proved difficult to replicate, but it's a hint, at least, that maybe these land animals that do migrate large distances might have some use for the Earth's magnetic field. Sounds like a very attractive field to be in to me. Believe me, I didn't write that. I know everyone writes in and tells me my jokes are terrible. I honestly am not responsible for that one. That was Peter Hoare, and he was speaking with Francesca Fazy. Still with us is Richard Harrison. It's important to emphasise, Richard, um, isn't it, that it's not just birds that are sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field. There are lots of animals and, and other organisms that are emerging now as being sensitive to magnetism. Yes, that's right. And uh, one of the best known examples of uh, of an organism that uses the magnetic field to navigate is in uh, a type of bacteria that we call magnetotactic bacteria. And these are amazing little creatures that have learned to build to build uh, chains of magnetite nanoparticles inside their cell, which essentially turns that bacterium into a compass. And they swim along the Earth's magnetic field lines so that they can find uh, very efficiently the correct level in the water column for them to, to, to live. I was going to say, what would be the advantage to a bacterium to be, a, be able to sense the magnetic field? Well, they, they, they live under very specific conditions. They need too much oxygen would be poisonous to them. Too little is, is uh, again, not, not ideal. So they live at the redox boundary between the two. And if you swim around randomly trying to find that level, it can be a very inefficient way. But if you orient yourself in the field and swim in an exactly straight line, then you get there very efficiently. I read a story in the journal eLife about three years ago. Researchers published a, a very interesting paper on tiny microscopic worms. And they found that these worms would swim in a certain direction through the jelly they grow them in when they're in England. But if you send them to Australia, to Adelaide, where they did these experiments, the worms will swim in the opposite direction. And studying the worms, it turns out that there is a set of nerve cells at the back of the worm which are very long in one direction but very narrow in the other axis and they think they behave a bit like an antenna which means they might be sensitive to the inclination of the earth's magnetic field because if you also do the experiment and grow these worms in an applied magnetic field you can change 
this behaviour. And if you abolish those nerve cells that are in the worms, they lose the ability to detect magnetic fields. So it looks like they have evolved away independently to have their own sort of magnetic antenna inside the worm, again, to, to find the right level for where they, they need to feed. Yep, that's very interesting. And the, the idea there is that in the northern hemisphere, the inclination, the Earth's magnetic field is pointing down towards the ground. But if you go into the southern hemisphere, the Earth is pointing up into the, the, the magnetic field is pointing up into the sky. So if they're sensitive to that change in orientation, then that might affect the way that they swim. be tricky for them if they went to Mars then. As we were hearing from Cathy earlier that Mars has lost its magnetic field, things like that just wouldn't work, would they? Well, Mars did have a magnetic field early on in its history and that there are the infamous claims of evidence for these magnetotactic bacteria in the Allen Hills ALH84001 meteorite where people have found the magnetite nanocrystals which are remarkably similar to those that we find in, in Earth-based bacteria. But I should say not everyone believes that theory. And talking of people believing it or not, there are people also working on whether humans have these abilities and we just ignore them because we have more dominant skills like our eyes and a GPS. So we tend to suppress these other potentially latent magnetic sensitive skills. Yes, I know people who are working on that and they're finding some interesting results. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to talk about it because it's uh, top secret research. But we can say that there is some evidence pointing towards the fact that large primates, should, should we say, uh, might be able to sense the, the magnetic field. Richard, thank you very much. That's Richard Harrison from the University of Cambridge. Thank you to our other guests this week who are Cathy Whaler, Peter Hoare and physicist and science demo king Dave Ansell. And now to finish, it's time for Question of the Week. Tamsin Bell's been looking at this off-the-planet inquiry from Chad. Is it possible to terraform the moon so humans could live there long term? We asked our followers on the forum what they thought. User Diver John points out that the moon is relatively close to Earth and suggests living in underground spaces would be possible. We could even use solar panels on the moon's surface to supply our electricity. I spoke to planetary geoscientist David Rothery from the Open University. Terraforming is usually understood to mean modifying the atmosphere and hence also the temperature of a body to give it an environment where we could live. So in terms of us going to live in the open on the moon, the answer is no, because the moon's gravity is too weak to hang on to relatively light molecules such as water vapour, oxygen and nitrogen in the long term. Even supposing you found a way to liberate enough of those gases at the moon's surface to give it a breathable atmosphere, you'd have to continually replenish it as it leaked away to space. So like all bad first date restaurants on Earth, restaurants on the moon would have no atmosphere. It's not just the moon's weak gravity that's a problem. The moon has no magnetic field to deflect the solar wind, so this would always be eroding the top of the atmosphere. The closest we might one day come to a terraformed environment on the moon might be inside a large, transparent and leak-proof dome. Fill this with the right mix of oxygen, carbon dioxide, water vapour and nitrogen to more or less match the Earth's atmosphere and you could probably arrange the average temperature inside the dome to be comfortable for humans despite the nights lasting for two weeks. You could probably grow crops there too after a lot of work on the soil to get its structure and the microorganisms right. If we did decide to move to the moon, we certainly would need to plan it. The biggest obstacle to humans living on the moon, or indeed anywhere in space, is the cost of transporting whatever resources you need from the Earth. Things would be so much easier and cheaper 
if we could get most of what we need at our destination rather than taking it with us. We know there's water in the form of ice inside the shadowed craters near the moon's poles. There's plenty of oxygen that you could liberate at a large energy cost from lunar rocks. Carbon and nitrogen might not be so easy to come by, though, so we might need to depend on the Earth for quite a while. Thanks for bringing us back down to Earth, David. Next time, we'll be sticking to this one from Tom in Australia. Why is blue tack sticky? Stick around and we'll tell you next week. If you have an answer to that or a new question you'd like us to look into, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist or get chatting on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to Francesca Fazi for production and do be sure to join us next time when we're looking at the science of flu. It is 100 years since the worst flu pandemic in history and we'll put the past, the present and the future of one of our most deadly diseases under the microscope. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.